Okay, we're ready to get started on Numbers chapters 5 through 8 today, and I'm really excited about this, looking forward to walking through um, all of these chapters because there is there's so much here um, and a lot for present day gleaning, um, even though uh, we're looking at through numbers in um, I know this is a silly joke, but I did appreciate somebody saying um, those who complain about reading through Leviticus have not made it to Numbers, and mm-hmm. um, and I think a lot of that is because you you when you're not in the narrative, sometimes that is more challenging to you know kind of get through. But um, as we will see, hopefully in chapter seven in particular, I just think there is so. Uh, much richness to be gleaned even when you've got a lot of repetitiveness um, of some just beautiful, beautiful lessons um, from God's Word. So I'm excited about this. Um, We were just talking before we um, hit the record button about some helpful tools. Um, If you're going through, like, say, Numbers or whatever book of the Bible you happen to be studying, Um, And one that I mentioned was an inductive studying um, notebook, for lack of a better description, is what I'm working with um, right now. Um, And if you are interested in doing that, there's a free version. You can print it off on Incline My Heart. And then there's also a bound version that you can order and it'll be sent to you. But um, Elizabeth also mentioned a similar concept where you've got a book of the Bible, um, just one book, And then there's a journal page at that same opening. So you can really write to your heart's content um, notes that you want to remember from each book of the Bible that you happen to be looking for. And you said it, did I say Barnes & Noble already? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, Barnes & Noble or Amazon. Okay, perfect. Um, So anyway, those are just some helpful tools if uh, someone is looking for any extra things. And Sherry, did you have one that you were wanting to add? No, no, I'm good. Okay. Um, All right, so uh, we'll go ahead and get started. And uh, let's just go back because it's been a couple of weeks since we have been able to Uh, go through numbers. So just a quick recap uh, of the first four chapters. We are looking at basically, as the book would um, allude to, numbering the people and going through each tribe um, and giving the breakdown of that 600, 3,550 number that we get uh, when we're looking at all the, basically the men of war from each tribe, with the exception of Levi. Um, We don't count the Levites because they're not going to war. They are going to be taking care of the tabernacle. So those first four chapters are covering basically everyone's, um, not only their numbers, but their positions around the tabernacle and what order they're going to be marching out when they head out, that sort of thing. So with that in mind, now we're jumping into chapter five. Um, And I'm going to let Sherry, walk us through chapter five, and then we will uh, add our commentary um, if Sherry misses anything, which probably is (laughs) unlikely. So, Sherry, if you don't mind getting us started. Okay, so chapter five starts out with um, verses one through four talking about all unclean people being separated or put out of the camp. Um, That would be anyone with a bodily discharge, it would be lepers, it would be anyone that um, that um, is unclean being put out of the camp. Now, I don't know if this means, like, for some, for some of these things, it, this is like a permanent deal. Mm-hmm. Like, 
with a leper, although not necessarily because sometimes leprosy was cured and they were able to come back in um, after going through a ritual. But um, but for the most part, I think this is like when you're in an unclean situation, uh, verse 2 mentions having contact with a dead body. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, then you have to be out of the camp. But now this isn't saying you're just banished forever. This is just saying, yeah, because... You can't be in the camp because in the camp is closer to God and the defiled things cannot be close to God. So, um, so I, I, this isn't a, um, this isn't a, um, a way of punishing people because it wasn't their fault. But, um, some, you know, if you were around a dead body, you know, you're a person, your mother dies while you're sitting there holding her hand. Well, then you're unclean. But you know that's that's not casting aspersions on the, on these people. It's just saying you're unclean um, legally, and so mm-hmm. you have to be out of, outside the camp for a particular for a particular um, um, thing. And we've we've already talked about that um, prior to this. But I think this is just stating um, okay, now is the time to put these people outside because we're organizing this thing. And so these are where, this is where the people are camping. And so now is the, the time that we'll do that. And so mm-hmm. it's kind of like a summary. Right. Um, but just basically saying, it, because then in verse 4, the people of Israel did so, put them outside the camp, as the Lord said to Moses, so the people of Israel did. So it's just a reiteration. So then, um, then in verses five through ten, he talks about confession and restitution. People making making restitution if you have wronged someone mm-hmm. else, right? Um, and um, notice that you are to make restitution to the person. Um, if the person is dead, then you make restitution to the next of kin. Mm-hmm. And if there's no next of kin, then you make it to the priests um, because you're making it to God. You have to make restitution, even if there's nobody to make restitution to. If everybody, if this person is a loner and they don't have any family and they're dead, but you still have to make restitution. Right. Um, so um, so I think that's, I think that's pretty, um, I think that's exactly what he's saying here and I don't think there's anything, I mean, it's just, if, if, if you do something to someone um, or if you take something from someone, you've got to pay it back and you've got to do it according to what the law says, whether or not the person is still there. So um, then we get into this, this uh, verses 11 to 31 talks about this unusual test to determine if a husband's accusation of infidelity is true or not. Right. And um, so... It's a really strange ritual, it seems like. You thought it was weird? And yes. And it seems like to me that it is basically turning it over to God. Mm-hmm. So what happens to this woman when she drinks this holy water which is mixed with dirt from the floor of the tabernacle, so basically just dirt. Um is not something that would normally happen if you drank dirty water. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's a supernatural thing. Yeah. I think it's basically taking this before God and saying, 
okay, I think my wife has been unfaithful to me. And this is basically a way for God to say yeah or no. Um, um, I'm not sure why, um, but it, basically what it says is that she would drink this holy water mixed with the floor dirt. If she was guilty, her abdomen would swell and she would be rendered infertile. Basically, there would be pain involved. Um, uh, if innocent, nothing would happen. And then she would still be fertile. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, it seems at first, when you look at this, to be really misogynistic. Um, but I think it is more to protect the innocent. Mm -hmm. So because if your husband, especially in this time period, if your husband made an accusation against you, there wasn't really anything you could say. Right. Um, uh, in the world in general, outside of the Israelites, that was just your tough luck. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this is another instance where God is intervening for the innocent and saying, um, you can't just make an accusation against someone mm -hmm. and have that person suffer consequences which they're innocent of. And so, um, so I think that's I think that's what it is. There, uh, there have been some. Uh, uh, I never, I had never, like, actually read this until a few years ago. Um, I'm looking at this, the timestamp on this, because I put this in my notes um, from my um, Facebook Messenger. Um, it was April twentieth, twenty twenty. That was the first time I ever even came across this really passage, and so you know. Uh, not good on me, but um, so a person, uh, a friend of mine asked um, asked me, and I'll just read this. It says, I'm having an offline debate with uh, a member of the church family who took umbrage to my some of my jabs. He like likes to make jabs mm -hmm. yeah, people. And um, he said he agreed to an offline debate over the issues. I started out with abortion. Um, his, he answered with a seemingly canned answer that the God of the Old Testament, this is a quote, the God of the Old Testament taught abortion with the bitter waters in Numbers 521. Hmm. And I was like, I've never heard of that. Um, he said, I'm trying to teach him something. So we, so I asked, what was the purpose of the bitter water? He, uh, he hasn't answered yet. I did a little Google and found uh, Fred Clark, a Baptist, activist that is pro-LGBTQ. Have you ever heard of such a thing? And so I said, um, no, I've never heard of that. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, uh, so then I, I, I called up um, my friend Jeremy Nettles, who I was talking about earlier, and I posed, so I, so I wrote this back to Nick after I talked with Jeremy. It's a, I said, I, I posed the argument to my preacher friend and biblical scholar Jeremy Nettles who sent me this response. I've seen it brought up from time to time. See, I've never, because I, I, I brought it up to him and I was like, have you ever heard of this? Right. And he's like, yeah, I've seen it brought up a, a time or two. Um, uh, but the argument is so full of problems and the text so obscure that it is pretty rare. Consulting a number of translations shows that any interpretation involves some guesswork, and even if the curse is intended to invoke a miscarriage, mm. A, that's not the same as an abortion, 
B, it's being put in God's hands, not undertaken by humans. C, pregnancy is not a prerequisite to this ceremony. Right. And D, it's a curse, which means, one, it's seen as a horrible occurrence, a deterrent to the kind of behavior that's being discouraged. And two, it's about the same as saying, may God strike me down if I'm lying. Mm -hmm. which is a stupid and morally ignorant thing to say, but leaving that aside, if someone said that, we wouldn't call it justification for suicide. Yeah. Same deal here. Again, if miscarriage is in view, may God destroy the fruit of my womb if I'm lying. Hard to get from that to murdering your own baby unless that's just what you feel like doing in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and, then, uh, and then he said later... Um, I hope he's able to get somewhere being the oddball who questions absolutely everything. I've spent a lot of time contemplating abortion, but have never been able to find a single godly motivation or result for or from abortion. It's so patently obvious that I'm at the point of immediately questioning the motives of anyone who's even on the fence about it. So basically, I guess there are some people, I mean, and I'm just, I just, I throw this out there because I'd never heard that before. I'd never heard that argument made before, mm -hmm. but here it is. And I'm like, I don't see where that's what it's saying. Right. <laughs> but, you know, um, maybe someone would see that. And so basically it's a bad argument because it's like, okay, th there isn't anything in the passage that says she gets pregnant. Mm -hmm. And there isn't anything in the passage that says that she it's okay to abort the child or that God aborts the child. It, it, there it isn't anything that says that. So um, I'm going with, okay, this is just a test, um, something that they put before God. They do not decide it on their own. The husband doesn't decide it. The priest doesn't decide it. They do this test and God determines, okay, this person is innocent or this person is guilty. If she is if she's guilty, she's rendered infertile. Mm -hmm. And she goes through a lot of pain uh, when she's going through this test. If she's innocent, then nothing happens. And so um, so that, that just sort of exhausts my perspective on it. I mean, basically, mm -hmm. I think it, it, it uh, like we were talking about before, um, it, I think men have a tent more of a tendency to be jealous. So why isn't it doesn't it go the other way? Well, if a woman thought that her husband was being unfaithful, she didn't really have a lot of legal ground repercussions mm -hmm. for that. Mm -hmm. right. But and and I don't think that women have as as much of a tendency to be jealous of their husbands as husbands do of their wives. Um, um, just. You, you, we talk about the jealous husband, but we rarely talk about the jealous wife. I mean, mm -hmm. not that it never happens, but it, it doesn't happen very often. It's not as common. And um, just like um, in the New Testament, when uh, Jesus talks to um, to the people about the exception for putting away your wife is for fornication, but he doesn't talk about putting away your husband. It doesn't mean that a wife can't put away her husband. It just means that wasn't a thing mm -hmm. at that time. And right. so it's like men were men were divorcing their wives. Women were not divorcing their husbands. That, mm -hmm. that, that didn't happen. And so he's speaking to the situation that is there at the time. 
And so I think that's the same thing here. I think it's more as a, as a protection to women who were innocent than it is um, just a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I appreciate you bringing out the, the possible supernatural you know, aspect of it in the sense that it puts me in the mind frame of, you know, whenever God requires casting lots, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to make a decision, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it seems very right. similar to that, like you were saying, where this is leaving the decision-making in God's hands and not, uh, you know, fallible man as far as, you know, when you can't prove it uh, one way or the other outside of God's insight. Um, so I, I appreciate you walking through all those uh, very strange and difficult uh, passages uh, in that, that instance in particular in the chapter. Um, just to go back real quick for um, a brief moment, um, Elizabeth, uh, what other observations did you have within that um, narrative in chapter 5? Mm-hmm. So I... When I first read through this, I felt like verses 1 through 4, talking about the uncleanness, felt super out of place. It's just like, all right, hey, if you're unclean, get out of here. And we've already <laughs> gone through that pretty exhaustively in Leviticus. Yeah. But then if you take the, the whole chapter all together, it really is talking about things that are going to defile God's dwelling place. So if God is dwelling with people and in his camp and that needs to be holy, then like, uncleanness from just kind of normal human existing things still has to be put out until it is purified. People cannot um, dwell in God's presence if they're taking advantage of their neighbors or killing people, and that needs to be set right. And then, you know, if the marriage relationship is not right, um, as we know from a New Testament, per- or, yeah, New Testament perspective, then marriage marriage is supposed to reflect God's relationship with his people. Mm-hmm. So if you're not adequately reflecting your relationship with God within your family, then that is also not okay to be in God's presence. Mm-hmm. So I thought that taking that um, kind of as a whole really helped me piece these things together that mm-hmm. seem very just out there. Yeah. yeah. And then I know Sherry's done a great job talking about the test for adultery because it is very weird. There were a couple extra things that I picked up Um, in verses 19 through 22. The priest has to explain what's going to happen to the woman. Like, she's not just doing this weird ritual not knowing what's going on. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that almost gives them a way to have an out Mm -hmm. if they are guilty. Like, Mm -hmm. if you're innocent and you know you're innocent, then you're like, yeah, sure, I'll do this. Nothing bad's going to happen to me. But if you're guilty and you know what bad things are going to happen... There might even be some incentive to just go ahead and confess before the actual right. ritual takes a place. Deterrent, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I thought that was kind of an interesting kind of implication is mm-hmm. and it's since it's not explicit, I wonder if they were like allowed to back out at that point and just mm-hmm. say, Hey, you know, I cheated on my husband, I I don't want to be infertile yeah. and just kind of back out of that. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing is kind of more of a question. In that last verse, it says, The man shall be free from iniquity, but the woman shall bear her iniquity. And I took that to mean that if she is guilty, then, yeah, she's going to have to have the consequences of that, and it's not really her husband's fault. But my brain also was like, what if she's innocent? Are there any consequences for her husband, like, pointing fingers and accusing her of this? Right. And there's nothing explicitly prescribed. Like, 
from a legal standpoint, he's going to get away free. But then if you think about it more, that relationship is going to be broken, that she knows that he doesn't trust her, and then you've kind of got to start from scratch. And so if your wife doesn't really trust you, that's not putting you in a good place. Mm -hmm. So there's a deterrent for women not to cheat on their husbands, but there's also kind of this deterrent for the husbands to be pointing fingers Mm -hmm. if he doesn't have, like, any good reason to think that. Yeah. So, in conjunction with that, uh, that last verse where he, you know, um, the man will be free from from iniquity, to me, brought out these passages before, the verses before, where, um, it, where it states, when a wife, while under her husband's authority does this, you know, and a a couple of times it reiterates this while under her husband's authority. And um, it it, it is just interesting to me the um, repetition of going back to this is is her head, this is her authority, and if she violates that authority, here's what will happen in the sense of, you know, two-part, obviously, the, the wife's um, necessity of submitting herself to, you know, her husband as as the head, as the role of authority. But then secondarily, or I guess maybe even primarily, the large responsibility on his shoulders mm-hmm. that he bears the iniquity of what happens in his house. Mm-hmm. And so if he does not tend to that, if she is running around mm-hmm. and he does not take care of that, He's the one that bears that burden. And I don't think that's a pass for the woman to go act recklessly. But what it does is gives a sobering reminder, uh, strong reminder to the man, you're the one that's going to answer for what goes on in your house. You need to take that seriously. And um, so anyway, I just I thought that was very interesting in that chapter in particular, uh, the, you know, just the twofold of, you know, you do, as as wives, we do answer to our husbands. He is the authority. And, you know, for myself, you know, kind of question myself, do I, one, do I think that, but then also do I act on that? You know, am I treating him as the authority and he's the one that's answering for things? And then, you know, also it's almost a, a sympathy kind of thing of like, he has to answer for our household. And I need, I need to be cognizant of that and be aware of that is a lot for him to answer for and try to make this as easy as possible and not mm-hmm. a hard gig for him. So anyway, those were things that, you know, popped up in my mind just reading through this. Joe, did, were there anything that stood out to you in that chapter in particular before we head to chapter six? Um, well, <clears throat> one thing is um, the, when God tells them, they have to remove the leper, the person with discharge, and someone defiled by a corpse. I mean, I was surprised that, that lepers were not already removed. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure they were, they knew that they should be, but it does say, and the children of Israel did so. So mm-hmm. they must have been leaving lepers. And well, and I think too, isn't, isn't this timeline, and Sherry, you help me out with this, if I, or Elizabeth, either one, um, isn't this timeline, well, aren't we like two months out of bondage, like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, out mm-hmm. of crossing mm-hmm. the Red Sea? Yeah. So it, very new, I think, is mm-hmm. like, I think this is part of the, we are passing down the law, and 
you know, reiterating in different places. Remember, lepers, defiled things, you know, corpse, you know, someone who's, they've got to be removed out of the camp. Um, which, in the, I think it's the next chapter that we're going to get to with the Nazarite vow. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, anyway, just so many of those uh, tick marks that I, I cannot help but think Samson did all these things. And um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> that just makes it very painful to read. Like, oh, yeah, I, this is who this reminds me of. You mm-hmm. do all the things you're not supposed to. So, mm-hmm. anyway. And I had one more yeah. um, question. Um, okay. Let's see. Um, had it here. He would the the priest would write down her offense and then scrape it into the water. Hang on, where mm-hmm. was that? Mm-hmm. Oh, here it is. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm not trying. I really understand what they well, mean. Scrape them off. No, and that's what I was wondering too. It, it makes me think of what Elizabeth was saying. Uh, it to me, it's almost like you know the kid that you're. You know, well. I'm going to take off this belt. I'm going to, you know, like <laughs> all this process of like, sure, there's nothing else you want to tell me. I mean, I don't, I mean, that's yeah. the way it read to me mm-hmm. of like, you know, one mm-hmm. kind of painstaking step after the other that she's sitting here watching the whole thing mm-hmm. and processing, am I innocent? You know, like, mm-hmm. am I certain that I want to go through with this? Am mm-hmm. I truly innocent? Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, but I don't mm-hmm. know, like if you're asking like, specifics of like what how because that was the other thing that ran through my mind was are we at I mean it could be papyrus I mean I was just trying to think like what is the actual what would you have scraped ash I don't know I don't know do you I mean have you ever no I don't know I guess you were a slacker until 2020 maybe. that's what I heard <laughs> yeah exactly I was like well, I, um, I, I think that um, it sort of it, it, what it reminds me of is sort of like eating your words yeah you know um like literally Mm -hmm. you know like one of the things we used to do when our children would say something they weren't supposed to say would be to wash their mouth out with soap right you know well what does that do well it doesn't do anything it's just Mm -hmm. symbolic yeah you know you know if if you're going to talk like that then your mouth is dirty it's dirty right yeah you know similar situation i think right Okay, well, we'll go ahead and get into chapter six. And Elizabeth, do you mind walking us through just the narrative there? And then we'll pull out our observations. Yeah. So chapter six, for most of it, there's 21 verses, is describing the Nazarite vow. And I thought it was really interesting. Nazarite isn't referring to, like, any one people or, like, ethnicity that it's originally Mm -hmm. from. But it just means, like, consecrated or set apart. Mm -hmm. So... When we talked about vows at the end of Leviticus, we talked about this is a, a voluntary thing. Mm-hmm. So a Nazarite vow would be voluntarily setting yourself apart from the people, even further than being set apart from the nations, mm-hmm. specifically to become closer to God. And this isn't like a um, this isn't necessarily a permanent thing like you don't have to be doing a Nazarite vow for like your entire life you can do it for a set period of time maybe there's just like a week that you're devoting yourself to God something like that almost like fasting mm-hmm. where you're choosing this time to put aside certain things to devote yourself to God so the main things with the Nazarite vow are not drinking any wine or strong drink which includes vinegar which i thought was super interesting mm-hmm. 
But I think because it all connects back to grapes, because I think vinegar comes from grapes. Okay, I'm getting head nods. <laughs> <to revolution. laughs> That's right. Yeah, so not eating anything, eating or drinking anything related to grapes. No shaving your head, so your beard and your hair is going to get super long. Um, not going near a dead body, which you're not really supposed to do anyways. You'll become unclean, mm-hmm. but... You can't do this. You can't become unclean even for, like, your close family members. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, when we were talking about the priests, they could kind of be unclean a little bit for, like, your sister or your mom or something like that. But Nazarites, no, you're completely separate. You're not unclean. Or, yeah, you're not allowed to be unclean. Mm-hmm. What I thought was wild is that if you just kind of, by happenstance, or by a dead body, like, you're standing next to a guy and he just dies, <laughs> then your vow resets. Yeah. You have to go through the kind of process of purification, which we've touched on before. And then he's got to start all the way over, which, like, just imagine being on the last week of your vow and like, mm, dead body. Because it says, like, that first part doesn't count. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you kind of complete this vow, once you get to the end of that period that you've set aside, you're going to bring a whole bunch of different sacrifices, which is also really similar to, like, when you're completing a vow or completing a um, kind of purification ritual, you're going to bring all these sacrifices to the Lord. And again, this is a um, voluntary thing. And that last verse says, hey, if you want to do anything beyond this, if you want to pay a further vow within your means, then yeah, go for it. But this is kind of the baseline Nazarite vow. Mm-hmm. And then... The last um, handful of verses, um, I've heard this called like the benediction or like the ironic blessing. Mm-hmm. And it's basically what I, I understood it to mean this is what the priests are going to say to you like when you come to bring your offering, when you come before God. Um, and it's pretty well known, you know, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. And the kind of significance of that is that this is going to put God's name on the people of Israel and he's going to bless them. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is really, really important that this is what the priests are saying to the people because it's almost like a reminder that if you're serving the Lord, you're representing him to the nations. And if you're Mm going to represent him adequately, then he is going to bless you and um, give you all this great stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, so I thought that was, the timing of that was really interesting. Even though it's not super explicit, that's what I understood it to mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, Joe, what observations did you have from Chapter 6? Well, if I did, if an Nazarite was next to someone who suddenly died, we actually say he sinned. So it, to me, it was just, um, it solidified how serious God is about a covenant with him. Mm-hmm. And he expects mm-hmm. it to be done. He does give um, some accommodation for if some, you know, some accident happens, but it's still considered a breaking of the covenant, even if it's accidental. Yeah. Sherry, what about you? Um, uh, the only thing I would add is just um, that um, we have some examples of Nazarites in the Old and New Testament. Um, Samson in particular comes to mind. Um, although Samson, 
actually broke all of the things. All of them. All of them. Um, and we, we tend to focus on his hair being cut, but he also, you know, killed a lion with his bare hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then also ate stuff out of it. Um, <clears throat> and um, so, but anyway, um, so you have Samson, and then you also have John the Baptist, who I think had the Nazarite vow. Also, um, Paul does do um, a Nazarite vow in at the end of the book of Acts. He goes, uh, pays his vow, and has his hair cut. They would typically have their hair shaved at the beginning of the Nazarite vow. That way, it wasn't already long. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then, um, and those are the only ones. I've, I've heard people say that Jesus had a Nazarite vow, which he did not, because we know Jesus touched dead bodies uh, all the time. He raised people from the dead, so mm -hmm. he will actually touch them. Um, um, and uh, we, we don't have any, um, we don't have any indication that he didn't drink fruit of the vine. We actually have confirmation that he did. Um, uh, uh, and there isn't anything mentioned about his hair. So, mm -hmm. um, so, um, but but those three are the ones that I think of um, when I think of the Nazarite vow, and um, it was just supposed to be like a sign of. Someone, someone mentioned. Someone called it rugged discipleship. So it was like, <laughs> okay, I'm super serious about this. Mm -hmm. um, so um, those are the only things that I had, you know, other than what Elizabeth said. I thought that was pretty adequate. Yeah. Um, and and the blessing at the end, I think, is just it, it 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 does. I think that the blessing at the end signifies that okay, we're moving on to another section here. Yeah. Of, mm -hmm. of stuff. So right. Did you have one more thing that you well, wanted to add? I, I was making a goofy face because <laughs> when I was a kid, I got Nazarite and Nazarene mixed up, mm -hmm. which I'm glad you brought up Jesus. Because mm -hmm. being from Nazareth, mm -hmm. you'd be a Nazarene. Mm -hmm. But that wouldn't mean that you were a Nazarite because mm -hmm. you didn't take the Nazarite vow, mm -hmm. which right. isn't referring to any geographic location. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So it is tricky. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh, I love it. Okay, all right. Well, we're going to... Um, head into chapter seven, which is the lengthiest of, uh, these chapters. Um, but there is, uh, this is where we see the most repetition, uh, in this section, mm -hmm. uh, in particular. Um, and I'm going to walk through, uh, the narrative and just make a couple of comments and then we'll open it up for more observations here. So, um, like Sherry was saying, you know, we're, it's sort of like we're ending one section and we're starting a new one in seven uh, where it says when Moses had completed setting up the tabernacle, he anointed it and consecrated it in all its furnishings. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we're um, looking at the consecration now of the tabernacle, specific tabernacle specifically. And as we go through this chapter, we're going through tribe by tribe. And I know this is not like chiasm worthy, but I just felt really excited when I walked, when I read through this because as we go through, you see Judah, Issachar, Sebulun, Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Dan, Asher, Naphtali. And if you don't know why I'm so giddy, ridiculous, excited about that, then you need to go back to last mm -hmm. podcast and listen. But, uh, or, you know, open your Bibles to the beginning of Numbers 
where he goes through, and this is in one, is that right? Nope, no, 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 excuse me. This is in two, two. two where you've got where each uh, set of tribes, so we've got three to the east, three to the south, three to the west, and then three to the north, and then Levi in the middle, and we've got that exact order of here's first Judah, then Reuben, then Ephraim, then Dan, and you know their counterparts to go with that. And I just, I love that they're going through uh, that same order of operations, so to speak, and saying here is what the uh, each of these tribes dedicated, and it is in that that same order. Like, oh, okay, look at that. You know, it's it's a pattern. Imagine that. Um, so, anyway, as he uh, goes through each one, um, and he numbers, it, so the, each tribe gives the same thing. Okay. So, uh, like, uh, let's see. I'm trying to see where Judah, did I overlook? That's, yeah, Judah here, 12. Okay, so 100, uh, we're talking one silver platter weighing 130 shekels, one silver sprinkling bowl seventy shekel, worth 70 shekels, um, fine flour with olive oil as a grain offering, and then one gold pan with 10 shekels. One bull, one ram, one ram, one lamb, um, one goat, and let's see for the peace offerings: two, two bulls, five rams, five male goats, and five male lambs in their first year. Okay, so that's going to be what each tribe, no matter their size, no matter any other details about that tribe, every tribe is giving the same amount. Um, so that we get to the end of the chapter, after you get past the 12th day, we've gone through all 12 um, tribes. And, of course, Levi is not mentioned in this as far as the, you know, their offering because they're the tribe of Levi. Um, but then in verse 84, you've got, you know, the totaling up. Okay, so each each tribe gave this much, and it was this, you know, and you added up to to be, uh, you know, exactly the same from each tribe. Now, 89, verse 89 is um, where it says, Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with the Lord, he heard the voice speaking to him above the atonement lid that was on the ark of the testimony from between the two cherubim. Thus he spoke to me. And it just gives me chills to read over that. You've gone through, you know, here's all the dedications. It's, you know, uh, consecrated. It is, you know, purified is perfected now Moses can go in and hear the voice of God where right above the ark of the testimony I mean it just it's just incredible um and slight detour um one of the things that that is just amazing to me I mean as, as incredible as that is he only heard the voice of God he didn't get to see the face of God and this was sort of a little conversation Celeste and I were having today, um, but the short version was she came around to saying, so when we're in heaven, we get to see his face. And I just, you know, you ju I, I just welled up because I thought, yes, I mean, that's, I mean, the closest Moses can get is to hear his voice, you know, and see, you know, him passing, but 
we don't get to do that until we're in heaven. And that is the most, you know, amazing and exciting thing. So anyway, um, so I love this chapter. I thought this was a fantastic chapter. It was very exciting to me. Um, just a couple of things that I pulled, oh, excuse me, pulled from it outside of the like, woo, I'm so excited to make connections. And like some of the sounds familiar, like that was super nerdy, exciting to me, um, were uh, two things at the very beginning of the chapter. So when he's going through the Kohathites, okay, um, before we get to the, you know, the first day, the second day, and, and so on, he specifies that they are not going to need carts for oxen because they are going to be in charge of carrying the holy things. Um, so, of course, a couple of things come to mind for me, um, which I, I'm sure everybody else will get there quicker than I can say it. But one, you think about David's time and Uzzah and all that problem. Well, big problem. You know, like he went to the trouble to say, Kohathites do not need carts. They are to carry the things that are holy. Um, and then the, the second thing is, I guess, more generic. It is... You know, it would be easy, throw the things on the cart. But I think, well, I know, when God has gone to the trouble of specifying, here's how I want you to do the thing, it's not just to make your life burdensome. It is to teach you something. And I think the the more that we can, you know, over and over and over through our lifetime learn that lesson, this is not, we're not just you know, killing ourselves for no reason. We're not just doing stuff to do stuff to check a checkbox. Mm -hmm. There's something very important God is trying to teach us mm -hmm. in very seemingly mundane things. And, um, and and that is just something that stands out to me over and over. And this is another place of this seems like such a small, what's the big deal? Carry it or throw it on a cart. It's a big deal because God has something to teach you about his purpose for what you're doing here. Mm -hmm. And each of these tribes have purposes, and Levites in particular have a very specific purpose. Mm -hmm. And, you know, from the outside of, like, some traveler coming by, it's like, okay, whatever, you know, it's mm -hmm. not a big deal. But to the people who are doing it, it is life-changing mm -hmm. if you are paying attention, mm -hmm. you know. And so I just I really love this chapter. I thought this was this was probably my favorite chapter because there were no rotting thighs. So I was excited about that. All right, Sherry, what did you pick up from that chapter? Okay, um, just going off of what you were just talking about, um, um, I like to go back to this passage to make the point that um, um, Moses, Moses was the one that, decided who got the wagons and the oxen. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't say that God said, don't give anything to the Kohathites because they're supposed to carry it on their shoulders. Moses just knew that. Because why? Because God had just told them, here's what you do. You need to put these rings on here, and then we're going to have these poles that you slide through there, and the Levites are supposed to cover everything up so that nobody accidentally touches it while they're doing that. And so um, Moses just figured it out because 
it just makes sense that if we're going to put stuff on a cart, then why would we have to have poles to carry it? Mm -hmm. And so, um, and, and the other thing is that God had said not to touch the things. Mm -hmm. And so this is a way of him protecting the Kohathites from touching the things. Because if they were going to get put on a cart, something's going to happen. The cart's going to get tippy and somebody's going to... And so there's a reason, you know, it wasn't just, like you said, to make their life miserable. They weren't supposed to touch the things. And one of the things that it, it tells me is that, okay, the things that God says are holy are holy. And if God said don't touch the thing, then... And he, and he prescribes a way for you to carry it that you don't have to touch the thing, then it's pretty important that you not touch the thing. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, I, think, I think that, um, you know, when we see later with David putting the thing on the cart and him getting upset with God, um, it was like, it was because he didn't look back at this passage mm -hmm. where... It said, <laughs> you know, and, and where, where Moses actually got it mm -hmm. and was like, okay, we're not going to put him on a cart because, mm -hmm. you know, then something might happen. So um, uh, when God says something is holy, it's really holy and he means it. Yeah. And, um, and the passage of time doesn't diminish that at mm -hmm. all. Like, it had been, you know, hundreds of years since God said this. And then, so it wasn't like, well, it just sort of, you know, time heals all wounds. And so enough time has passed that, well, you know, we're not going to really hold to that anymore. Mm -hmm. um, that's not the case. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so um, that, that encourages me to just look at the things that I'm doing and make sure that I'm doing it according to the pattern and I can't go, well, it's been this long, so it's probably not a thing anymore. Right. Um, um, the other things uh, that, um, that I noticed um, uh, in the, at the end, when, when, it, when it's totaled up, um, it's the total of all the offerings are all multiples of 12. Mm -hmm. So we talked about before, the, the number 12 indicates all of God's people. And so, um, so it indicates that they all offered the same things. They all offered the 12 or multiples of 12 of each of the things. Mm -hmm. um, uh, the other thing uh, is that um, in verse, uh, I think it's verse 12, um, day one, Judah Nashon, chief, son of Amminadab. Um, this is another instance. I, 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 I didn't find that in any of the other ones, but Nashon is the grandfather of Boaz, which means that he is the great-grandfather of David. Um... And so we see him being the chief in the tribe. These were all the chiefs, Nashon, mm -hmm. Nethanel, Ilian, Elizur, 
uh, all these people were the chief, you know, the, so the chief would be in charge of bringing the things. And so um, uh, we've talked to in pre previously about certain different people and different families that, mm -hmm. are, that are brought up over and over again. And so this is one of them, Nashon, uh, son of Aminadab, is in the lineage of Christ. So um, <clears throat> that's a thing with that name. Um, and then I think that verse 89 um, that you talked about, I think um, it sort of really belongs in the next chapter. Of course, mm -hmm. you know, the chapter uh, divisions are not inspired. Yeah. And so I think because it says that God spoke to him from between the cherubim, and then in the next chapter, it says what he said. Right. So um, I think that probably um, goes with, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, or, or it's, at least it's a segue into the next chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Elizabeth, anything from chapter seven you want to pull out? Um, nothing much that hasn't already been said, but while we're on verse 89, I thought it was really cool that when you started. Leviticus, God is speaking to the people. He's in the God is in the tent of meeting, and everyone is outside. But in verse eighty nine, it says that Moses is going into the tent of meeting. So I think it really emphasizes how far they've come in their relationship with God, just having the law and knowing what He expects of them. And by having those expectations, there's a way for them to draw near to Him, which I think is really important. Just kind of from an overarching thematic why is Leviticus the numbers important? Mm -hmm. This was their kind of avenue to dwell with God. Mm -hmm. Very good point. Joe, anything else from chapter 7? Well, um, when I started reading uh, what the tribe of Judah gave, then I was like, when I got to the leader of Issachar, I was like, okay, well, what's he going to give? <laughs> and so mm -hmm. it just brought home to me. Mm -hmm. It was kind of, uh, I mean, it's nice they... There's no competition. They're supposed to bring the same thing. And maybe that seems minor, but God's ways are always better than ours. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to fly through chapter 8 pretty quickly here uh, at the end. Um, so, as Sherry was already saying, that th we were starting out with what God actually spoke to Moses and its instructions to Aaron about, you know, when you set up the lamps, the seven lamps are to give light in front of the lampstand. Um, uh, to me, that speaks to um, the churches spoken of in Revelation mm -hmm. um, and um, seems to be, you know, like parallel there. Um, and then Aaron goes um, and, you know, this is, this is the theme that I see throughout this whole thing. Aaron goes, does, does what has been told to him, and then at the end of verse 4, according to the pattern which the Lord had shown Moses, so he made the lampstand. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then we've got, um, you know, take the Levites, make sure they're purified, um, and then goes through the specifics, sprinkle the water, have them shave their bodies, wash their clothes, purify themselves. And then, um, let's see, here we go. Verse 14, you are to separate the Levites from among the Israelites, and the Levites will be mine. And then he goes into um, the definite, I mean, the description of why the Levites, you know, are his. Um, am I? Okay, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's right. So, um, and, and, you know, just alludes back to, or, you know, mentions 
you know, when I brought you out of Egypt, mm-hmm. uh, when there was the killing of the first, or when the firstborn, um, you know, were all dedicated to me, this is what, you know, that's what the Levites are to me. They are the dedication for all of Israel um, as they're, you know, the firstborn um, being dedicated to me. Um, and, okay, so then uh, verse 20 It says, Moses and Aaron and the entire community of the Israelites did this with the Levites according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. This is what Israel did with them. Um, And then drop down to the end of 22 as the Lord had commanded Moses concerning the Levites. So they did. Um, And then he goes uh, through the 25 to 50, which we've noted uh, before. And I think that was in numbers, right? That they've already gone through this mm-hmm. when they're going through the description of Levites. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, that that's basically their workspace. But here, uh, what I thought was really interesting is uh, verse 26, they may assist their colleagues in the tent of meeting to attend to needs, but they must do no work. Um, so it, it is just, that is an interesting picture in my mind of almost a, continuation but in different capacity mm-hmm. of um you know their work uh, as a levite um and then um anyway so so throughout that chapter in particular the idea of the patterns um very strong i think there uh as over and over it's you know we did this according to the pattern basically um, and stated kind of different ways throughout the chapter. So just very quickly, we've only got a few minutes left, but I would love to hear any observations that y'all had on chapter 8, uh, starting with Sherry. Mm-hmm. Just um, verse 19, um, after he talks about, you know, or the reminder of the 10th plague, um, that actually says that the Levites were protection against plague there being no it says at the end of verse 19 that there may be no plague among the people of Israel when the people of Israel come near the sanctuary so the Levites were there to protect the people from God's wrath it seems like to me Mm -hmm. Um, um, I just thought that was interesting that he said that And then just the reiteration of all the times where it says God told them to do this and they did it. Um, Over and over again, we're going to see that. Okay. God said to do this and they did it. Yeah. Every single time they Mm -hmm. did it. Mm -hmm. All right, Elizabeth. Yeah, I think uh, I definitely thought of Revelation immediately with the seven lampstands. Mm -hmm. Um, and while we're kind of talking about the significance of 12, the significance of 7 obviously mm-hmm. being like a perfect number, completeness, which I think is really cool having this towards the end of the dedication of the, t- of the tabernacle mm-hmm. um, because it's showing that this is complete, this is whole, this is done the way that God wants it to, which kind of we've been hammering that point on this chapter. Um, the other The other thing that stood out to me the most was that last little chunk about um my bible gives it the heading retirement of the levites and i don't <laughs> like that yeah. because when you think about um oh you know you turn 65 and then you retire it's like you're out there bird watching and gardening and you're like <laughs> right. not really doing stuff 
Um, but number one, this is at age 50, so mm-hmm. a little bit younger than we conceive, like, quote-unquote, retirement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is important for a couple reasons. Number one is you're kind of cycling in the new generation. Mm-hmm. And they're not just gone. They're still... Um, helping others and they're probably giving advice and you know helping the younger generation but they're not in there ministering Mm -hmm. and I could go off on a side tangent about certain things but I'm not going to (laughs) um but then the lower limit being 25 is different than the one that we talked about in chapter four Mm -hmm. um which I guess that's the kind of difference between some Levites and some of the different Levites, and we don't really have time to get into it, and I don't know enough about it. Um, But I'll kind of make a similar point to what I made when we talked about that, which is there's some level of maturity expected for people that are serving in God's presence. Mm -hmm. I made this comment last time as well. 20-year-olds are not the most mature people. 25-year-olds, that's still kind of pushing it. Um, But there is this understanding that this is a very serious job, but the younger people still need to be trained up in it, mm-hmm. which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. All right. And Joe is going to wrap us up with the last of the <laughs> you guys did a good there. job. <laughs> okay. Um, and I, thank you for pointing that out. I'd forgotten that uh, Chapter 4 has got 30 to 50 instead of 25 to mm-hmm. 50, so something to look at later. But, um, no, just uh, to steal, because uh, Elizabeth was kind and didn't, you know, do her hobby horse. Here we go. So, um, I I just do think it is interesting. You know, I think about, you know, older women training younger women, um, and our admonition given to do that in the new Testament. And, um, just yesterday I was talking to a young lady who was telling me about, uh, an older woman who's her mentor. And I said, that is so interesting that you say that I've heard a couple of other girls about your age saying this, like, how did that happen? And shock of all shocks, the way that that happened is an older woman looked at her and said, I would love to study the Bible with you. And she became her mentor. And I just thought, we've got to do more of that. So mm-hmm. anyway, just an encouragement for mm-hmm. those of us who um, have someone younger than us, which is all of us, and um, to to be looking for opportunities to do that because I do think that is the way that God has set up that pattern. Mm-hmm. So anyway, thank you all so much. This was a wonderful study and looking forward to next time.